there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, Episode 110, Comradely Bonds, Part 2. Well, we finally made it, the last episode of the intro to the Soviet Union. I wasn't expecting it to go on as long as it has, but it all kind of got away on me, which I suppose happens a lot when it comes to Russia. So, last week we left off with Stalin and his newest crew of friends turning on Kamenev and Zinoviev. Trotsky was still in the mix, too, and Krupskaya definitely wanted Stalin removed as well, but the balance of support looked heavily in Stalin's favor. So much so that it seems odd that Stalin didn't move more assertively in taking out his enemies during these years. But the party was not yet totally beholden to its general secretary, and for most of 1925, Stalin held off on fresh political onslaughts as he solidified his new alliances. This is going to be the story for the next several years. Stalin was a cautious operator, and not only let others do the public attacking of his enemies, so as to keep up the fiction of his own impartiality, he also allowed those attacks to play out over long stretches of time. There would be no sudden condemnations and arrests, at least at first, that will come later, but in these years, not just yet. Enemies would be politically isolated and then slowly stripped of their standing. Once completely discredited, then they could be taken care of. To keep the zinoviev kamenev krupskaya block off balance, he actually began shielding Trotsky from their continued attacks and calls to remove him from the Politburo. Keep in mind that while Zinoviev had fallen out with Stalin, he still hated Trotsky just as much. The next round of headbutting came at the 14th Party Congress, which had been delayed multiple times and only held in December 1925. The reason being Stalin was maneuvering to line up even more party support ahead of the event. Zinoviev and Bukharin delivered multi-hour speeches attacking each other over the NEP, while Kamenev took the opportunity to denounce the concentration of power in Stalin's hands and warn the assembly that the party was abandoning its internal democracy in favor of having a leader, effectively a dictator. His accusations spurned shouts and jeers from the crowd, which alternated between praising Stalin and the Communist Party as a whole. It would effectively set the tone for the remainder of the Congress. Tomsky rebutted Kamenev by asking how power could have been concentrated as he suggested, the unspoken answer being the old Bolsheviks allowed it to happen. Finance Commissar Sokolnikov then took the podium. He was an ally of Stalin's on the NEP, but made a fatal break with him over his position in the party. He demanded Stalin step down from the Politburo so long as he remained general secretary. These speeches set off a firestorm of debate that would last the remainder of the Congress. But the opposition simply wasn't in a good enough position, and even Trotsky remained silent during the proceedings. He was fully present, but just declined to speak. He would later claim to be caught off guard by Kamenev's call to remove Stalin, which was fair because Kamenev had, up until that moment, never taken such a firm stand as that. His supporters were also divided over having another go at opposition, while also not wanting to join with Zinoviev, their hated enemy. In the final Central Committee elections, Kamenev and Zinoviev were not re-elected, and as 1926 dawned, they came firmly within Stalin's crosshairs. Kamenev was demoted to a candidate member of the Politburo, meaning he sat on the group but couldn't vote. Molotov, Voroshilov, and Kalinin were all promoted to full members. 
Their ascension turned the body completely over to Stalin's control, as these men were full underlings, without even the pretension of being their boss's peer. Molotov and Voroshilov were sent in January to Leningrad with the express purpose of cleaning house there. The party apparatus in the city was run by Zinoviev, and were bullied into compliance with Moscow through both threats and actual physical force. Sergei Kirov, a protege of Stalin's and something approaching a friend, was appointed as chief of the Leningrad branch in Zinoviev's place. Kamenev, reduced to being commissar of trade, attempted to smooth things over with Stalin, telling him that the whole incident at the Congress was just a misunderstanding. Meanwhile, he tried again to reconcile himself and Zinoviev with Trotsky. Trotsky, though, was almost at his wit's end with all the intrigue, which he definitely wasn't good at, and would claim to be neither with Stalin nor with Zinoviev. Stalin will cheat, and Zinoviev will run. A triumphant Stalin would celebrate the occasion by taking a little summer vacation down to Georgia starting in May 1926. His experience this time visiting his homeland would be a far cry from the stormy reception of 1921. His Caucasus underbosses, Mikoyan and Orjanikidze, took every precaution to make sure their master's stay was a pleasant one. Stalin would content himself with gardening and hiking, all the while checking in on his old haunts. It was an idyllic existence for him, and it must have felt that by the time he departed on July 6th, that it was too soon. That being said, his absence from the capital for a month and a half led what was left of his opposition to do something really, really stupid. A Moscow ward boss named Grigory Balenki, who was a lingering member of Trotsky's left opposition, set up a little meeting some 20 miles outside of Moscow. And by little, I mean around 70 people, all party members of some rank, whom he attempted to convince to illicitly organize to rise against the regime. It was an insane plan, and you better believe somebody squealed to the OGPU. On June 8th, arrests were made, and word got back to Stalin of what was happening. Stalin was beside himself with glee. There was no formal connection between the meeting and his high-level enemies, but that didn't really matter. The Central Committee plenum was starting up almost as soon as he returned to Moscow and would provide the perfect backdrop for the latest round of accusations. The plenum opened on July 14th, but started going off the rails only on the 20th. Zerzhinsky, who was still annoyed that Kamenev had almost led him into a plot against Stalin, rebuked his old comrade. However, during the speech, he began to turn deathly pale, and he could barely stand. He was helped out of the meeting hall, where he apparently recovered enough to begin walking home to the nearby Kremlin apartments. However, it turned out that Iron Felix had suffered a heart attack mid-speech, and he dropped dead on the walk home. He was only 49. The others, though, continued in his absence. Trotsky tried to invoke Lenin's testament again, but it was too late. Stalin turned it back around on his opponents and reminded everyone of how long it had taken Trotsky to join with the Bolsheviks. He used the meeting to cast Zinoviev out to the Politburo, but declined to remove Trotsky, again opting to ruin his opposition over time and with a thousand cuts. This was apparently the final straw to drive Trotsky to formally ally with Zinoviev and Kamenev starting in October 1926. The partnership lasted all of a month before it was destroyed in the 15th Party Congress that started on October 26th. Trotsky and Zinoviev took their now familiar shots at Stalin, which the general secretary was able to brush off as he normally did with mocking humor. 
Then, Trotsky jabbed a finger in his direction and called him the gravedigger of the revolution. That one cracked Stalin's armor, and he left the room in a huff while the Congress shouted amongst themselves. Even Trotsky's supporters grasped the enormity of what had happened and dreaded the response. They wouldn't have long to wait. The next day, Stalin forced through the Congress Trotsky's removal from the Politburo, Kamenev lost his candidate member rank, and Zinoviev was marked out to lose his leadership post on the Comintern. The latter two turned on Trotsky for so recklessly forcing the breach, and Stalin left it to Bukharin to have the last word, letting his ally tear down the lot of them. Stalin, at this point, was riding high, and the so-called left, new, and united oppositions had all withered away. One of the few times he might have felt vulnerable after the 15th Party Congress was in spring 1927, when the China situation blew up in his face. If you listened to the China episode's last miniseries, you already know the story. The Kuomintang faction under the military commander Chiang Kai-shek had launched a massive South-North campaign to unify China, and did so with the assistance of the Soviet Union. The Soviets saw in Chiang a useful partner against imperialism, and in the Kuomintang a useful incubator for the Communist Party of China. Zinoviev even went so far in 1926 as to advocate the Kuomintang be allowed into the Comintern as a full member, although they wound up only making Chiang personally an honorary member. Too bad for all of them that Chiang saw the Communists as one of the greatest dangers facing him, and launched a purge in April 1927 that nearly destroyed the CPC. At a Central Committee plenum in mid-April, China became the new battleground of assigning blame. Trotsky and Zinoviev correctly pointed out that the guidance and decision-making had all been Stalin's, which isn't to say that there had been previously a great debate over the subject, just that Stalin was the one holding the bag on this one. In June of that year, he issued a change in policy, ordering the CPC to start forming a Red Army, to launch peasant uprisings, and to commandeer as much of the left KMT as they could. This was that set of orders that I described back in episode 73 as being completely out of touch with reality. And it was, insofar as it related to events on the ground in China. But just as important, the orders were intended for a Soviet audience to show that he was turning to revolutionary orthodoxy, ignoring the fact that his hand had been forced by Chiang's betrayal. Events abroad would continue to influence the decision-making of the Soviet leadership in 1927. Back in May 1926, Joseph Pilsudski had launched a coup in neighboring Poland. His seizure of power was widely considered within the USSR to be backed by the United Kingdom, as potentially a prelude to some kind of capitalist encirclement, which made Chiang's betrayal sting all the more a year later, as his friendship was supposed to be the means to break that encirclement. While Poland was far, far smaller than the Soviet Union, if they were backed by the UK and joined directly by other hostile neighbors like Romania, Finland, and Japan, then the Union could find itself in a very precarious position. These fears were given new life in May 1927 when the UK broke relations with the USSR. From the British perspective, there were accusations of espionage, which were perfectly true. In addition, the conservative government there couldn't have been too enamored with public support coming from Moscow on behalf of the Great Strike of 1926, so they were already looking for excuses to break relations. The Soviet side was incredulous that the UK would break relations over a matter so small as a little bit of espionage. The UK, too, had agents active in the Union, stirring dissent especially in Ukraine. 
Rumors of war became open conjecture in newspapers, and paranoia began to spread, creating runs on food and consumer goods. Keep in mind, this was in the waning days of the NEP, when the government was already clumsily trying to bring the market more under its control. What was already a deteriorating situation only became worse. The isolating effects of this were heightened because the UK was the largest trading partner for the Soviets, and British hostility also meant that their second biggest partner, Germany, got second thoughts about investing further into them. Weimar Germany might have found the USSR a useful relation during the years when it was a pariah state as well, but by 1927 the spirit of Locarno was in effect and Western Europe appeared to be reconciling, meaning the Germans had much less of a need for their low-class Soviet buddies. And striking up a friendship with France was always a non-starter on account of the Poincaré government making repayment of Tsarist-era debts a precondition to good relations. The Soviets actually entertained the possibility of repaying some of those debts, but that plan was ruined in April 1927 when the French did their own sweep of Soviet agents, exposing coordination with the French Communist Party. Attempts to salvage the possibility of working relations were finally scuttled by fall on account of personality clashes on both sides and the French right not wanting to boost a regime hostile to their class interests, which, you know, that's just them playing to their team. What I'm getting at with this little uh, international overview was that this paranoia played into Stalin's hands, because of course it did. And crimes classified as counter-revolutionary were expanded, and anything that could be construed as weakening the state was considered a capital offense. What did weakening mean exactly? It could mean anything the state wanted it to in actual practice. Not that fears of violence were false ones. In Leningrad on June 7, 1927, a terrorist group slipped past the OGPU and detonated a bomb at a popular party venue, killing one and wounding 26. On the exact same day, a Soviet envoy to Poland was gunned down in a Warsaw train station. Both attacks were the handiwork of Russian exiles wanting to strike back, but Stalin suspected the British to be the ultimate hand behind not just those plots, but everything working against the USSR. As a result, the OGPU got free reign to crack down on anyone suspected of being in cahoots with the British. The old Czechist tribunals were brought back from the Civil War days, and it was reported to the Politburo that some 20,000 house-to-house searches and 9,000 arrests had been made in the aftermath. All the while, fears of war abounded, and the national mood turned darker still. And while Stalin himself probably didn't think that circumstances would break out into a shooting war, he did fear outside efforts to destabilize his regime. This meant it was finally time to wind down the opposition and expel them from their last positions of influence. He attempted to have his old foes expelled from the party at the end of July 1927 during the latest Central Committee plenum, and it was only the intervention of Sergo or Janikidze that saved them, as he convinced the committee to allow Stalin's rivals to remain so long as they reaffirmed loyalty to the party. Orjana Kidza is an interesting person in that he was personally close to Stalin and acted as a loyal lieutenant to him. But Sergo also despised the inter-party conflict, and while he never summoned the courage to stand up directly to his boss, he did act counter Stalin's wishes now and again. It also demonstrates that while Stalin was head and shoulders above everyone else, his subordinates did have some measure of influence and freedom of action of their own within the party, at least in 1927. But as you might imagine, his defense didn't really matter. 
In leadership meetings running across September to October, Stalin again hounded his opponents. Trotsky and Zinoviev were kicked from the common turn completely, with a gloating Bukharin telling them that for them there was no third international, only Stalin, or at best, Stalin and Bukharin, rather naively placing himself close to Stalin's position of prominence. Zinoviev vainly tried to convince the party leadership to allow an opposition platform to be made available at the upcoming party congress, but was forbidden from doing so. When a group of opposition members that had been thoroughly compromised by the OGPU attempted to print up copies of a platform anyway, they were rounded up and used as an example of a brewing conspiracy. By November, the endgame was near. During the 10th anniversary celebrations of the October Revolution, there had been poorly attended and feeble opposition protests. These had been rapidly quashed, but Stalin used them as a pretext of incitement to rebellion anyway. On November 14th, Trotsky and Zinoviev were finally expelled from the party. Kamenev and some others were removed from the Central Committee. On the 16th, they were ejected from their apartments in the Kremlin. That night, Adolf Yoffa, the man who had established the Chinese connection with Sun Yat-sen and who had sided with the opposition, shot himself. He left a 10-page suicide note that was summed up by the comment, Thermidor has begun. Thermidor being a reference to Napoleon's takeover of the First French Republic. The 15th Party Congress opened on December 2nd, and Stalin was again triumphant. Poor Kamenev was on hand, not even to broach the idea of opposition, but to beg for mercy. Stalin mocked his old comrade and declared that the expelled and those slated to be expelled could be forgiven only if they renounced their anti-Bolshevism, which was to say if they swore loyalty to Stalin. But even that was an empty promise, as Gamanev, Zinoviev, and some of their supporters signed a letter apologizing for their quote-unquote anti-Leninist mistakes. Stalin ignored them and proceeded to scatter many oppositionists across the Soviet Union in a reintroduced form of internal exile. Trotsky was shipped off to the city of Alma-Alta in eastern Kazakhstan in mid-January 1928. A process that had begun over three years prior was now reaching a decisive point. While Stalin had clearly been the center of political power since early 1924 at the latest, the existence of the opposition had meant that there were options where a party member could cast their loyalty. No more. Now, there was just really Stalin. Even as Bukharin deluded himself into thinking that he was working in a kind of partnership with the general secretary, there was in reality only the one man's will over the party. Moreover, Bukharin had just aided his provenly traitorous partner with eliminating the left opposition that had been the foundational threat of their partnership. With the left out of the way, Bukharin's right bloc could now be turned on. At the exact same party congress that the left was being wound down, a new, new economic policy was being set up. A plan, so to speak. It would take right at five years and claim to cure the USSR of what ailed it, which was namely the lack of heavy industry. It would, of course, morph pretty dramatically between then and its October 1928 start date, but this was, of course, the start of the five-year plan, which tellingly was a rejection of Bukharin and the right's preference towards the party being more hands-off in the economy. The five-year plan, which is actually the first major topic concerning the Soviet Union I'll be tackling next season, was very big into the whole central planning thing, which was a stark rejection of the liberal NEP that Bukharin had defended. But Stalin was riding high, and the popularity of the NEP was at an all-time low, so staying the course wasn't exactly viable. 
And it is also true that just as Stalin's position of primacy was being secured, the emergencies besetting the nation were becoming critical. The harvests of the past couple years had been poor. Not catastrophically so like in 1921, but not great. The peasants closed themselves off from the state by withholding grain, either to store it for later use, making moonshine with it, or using it as animal feed to produce more lucrative meat or dairy products. Fears of war did not help encourage sales either. The government crackdown on the Nepmen had not gone unnoticed by the peasants, and they were far more reluctant to deal directly with the state. They also weren't blind or stupid. They knew the Soviet government wanted to one day manage their farms directly, and they didn't intend to actively aid in those efforts. Famine in the spring of 1928 was now a very real possibility for the USSR cities. While Stalin gloated at the Congress, there was an underlying sense of urgency as all the political games had to be wrapped up. A decisive point in the Soviet Union's history was coming, and distractions couldn't be accommodated any longer. To start the new year and to shake off the collective hangover of the extended October Revolution anniversary celebrations, Stalin would go on a grain procurement trip, an echo of his Civil War days working in Tsaritsyn, and a return to places he hadn't been since his last exile ended in 1917. The trip was also partially to make Moscow more visible to the distant party bosses in Siberia, and ensure they would be counted upon to implement the new measures being devised to secure grain. One idea that was implemented was moving up the tax date so that the peasants would have to emergency sell their grain for a quick infusion of cash. Another was for Yagoda and the OGPU to begin arresting the largest remaining Nepmen who were acting as grain brokers, forcing the peasants to work with the state if they wanted to sell anything. The first plan backfired immediately. Many peasants already had ample time to build up their capacity to churn out non-grain products and opted to sell those to raise the cash to pay their flash tax bills. The idea to panic the peasants into parting with their grain was a bust. By the time Stalin arrived at his first stop on January 17th, the decision had been made to start pressing the peasants directly. The local OGPU branches were directed to arrest four to ten identified kulaks from each farming district for the purpose of making an example of hoarders. Even if the party bosses had half a mind to ignore the directives, Stalin was right there giving them orders, and the full power of that magnifying glass could not be resisted. They were ordered in a face-to-face -face meeting with Stalin that the expectation was to send a million tons of grain west out of a crop of 1.4 million tons overall, so the vast majority. There would be a specific person assigned to each district to make sure the quotas were met and ensure it was shipped properly, which meant those in question were highly motivated as Stalin would hold them personally accountable. There were some voices that fired back, daring to remind him what had happened in 1921 a collapsed food supply, and widespread revolt. But it was in a meeting on January 18th that Stalin let loose to the Siberian apparatchiks what was truly intended for the nation, collectivization. He informed them that without state intervention, Soviet agriculture, which was intended to be the engine of future industrialization, could not move beyond the rut it had found itself in. The individual peasants on millions of small farmsteads were too inefficient, and while a band of kulaks had built themselves large estates, their very existence was unacceptable to the regime. The answer was collectivization. This would consolidate all the nation's farms into large, specialized units that could be managed rationally, while at the same time smashing the Kulak system of exploitive ownership. This would also free up huge amounts of excess labor that would no longer be needed in the countryside. 
This labor would be packed into the cities in order to man the plan for industrial expansion. In a stroke, and as soon as the left opposition were out of the way, Stalin had changed his tact and started implementing their own proposals. And just in case you're wondering, no, this isn't the start of coverage on the five-year plan, at least formally. I bring these measures up to highlight Stalin's break with the right faction that continued to support the NEP. For their part, at the start of 1928, the right faction, led by Bukharin, Rykov, and Tomsky, supported the new requisition drives as a quote-unquote regrettable necessity. They weren't intended to be permanent, but Stalin wanted to force a break, and he wasn't the only one to go out to the provinces personally. Elsewhere in the Union, his inner circle of lieutenants fanned out, with orders from their boss to do everything they could to get as much grain as they could. This created a panic in the countryside that the NEP was to be abolished. This resulted in a political fracture between Bukharin and Stalin's cliques, which was on display during an April meeting of the Central Committee. Far from the dressing downs endured by the left opposition, the occasion saw Stalin in a conciliatory mood. Not feeling 100% comfortable that he could force through a reputation of the NEP on the spot, he backed down on continuing the grain requisitions, which led many to declare the meeting a victory for the right. However, he achieved two victories that undermined that assertion. The first is that it was acknowledged that the party did have the authority to declare emergency conditions when needed, legitimizing Stalin's ad hoc measures at the start of the year, and also implying they could be used again. The second event was unrelated to the grain issue and had to do with the Shakti trial, which I covered back in episode 104. That incident was just getting going, and through Rykov, who was tasked with giving a report on it, it was confirmed to the party leaders that there was a real danger of sabotage and subversion in the country, which meant the OGPU was to be given a freer hand in seeing to state security. And the pause in grain requisitions didn't last long either. The NEP had been fatally undermined by the winter requisitions, and the peasants were no longer delivering grain to government buyers, opting to sell everything directly to the market at inflated prices. This was compounded by poor harvests, and by May, a second round of requisitions had begun. This created an open break between Stalin and the right, and the general secretary stopped communicating with Bukharin outside of Politburo meetings. This set the stage for a summer confrontation at a July Central Committee meeting. The last meeting of the committee's 71 members might have been tense. This one, though, had all the makings of an actual political brawl. The right marshaled all its support to campaign and influence the committee members towards its way of thinking. Bukharin counted the Moscow section of the party as his base, Tomsky had the nominal support of the millions organized in the trade unions, and Rykov still led the subnarkom. In addition, much of the educational sector and virtually all of those who still supported the NEP backed the three. It seemed a much more even fight than what the left had offered. Their newspapers flooded the streets, attacking Stalin's unilateralism, as well as the reckless measures being taken to undermine the rural economy. The mobilizing appeared to work, and the July meeting of the Central Committee publicly went Bukharin's way. The NEP was reaffirmed, and the emergency requisitions were set to be shut down. The turnaround was so stark that when Trotsky got the news in his internal exile, he surmised that Bukharin had supplanted Stalin as the great danger to be feared. But under the surface of victory, Bukharin saw only a hollow victory. He had won the proceedings, but the Central Committee as a group was unwilling to rebuke Stalin, and his position of primacy remained intact. Worse, the uncommitted members of the committee and the Politburo drifted into Stalin's camp. 
This left the right in a minority position, a significant minority, but one nevertheless. The meeting had also seen the right supporters loudly tear into Stalin, calling for his powers to be curbed. The day had been won, but a gauntlet had been hurled at Stalin's feet, and the general secretary kept his power of appointment intact. And Stalin would make full use of those powers and steadily remove the supporters of the right within the party and government, replacing them with his own supporters. The battle was carried on in the following 6th Congress of the Comintern held on July 17th. Bukharin was the leader of the Comintern after Zinovia was removed, but rapidly lost control of the agenda as the international communists turned their support over to Stalin. As the summer concluded, the right's position disintegrated in earnest. On September 19th, Kubishev put forward proposals for an ambitious and state-directed industrialization program, far in excess of what the right was willing to support. Bukharin and the others feared the dislocations of sudden and potentially violent state intrusions into the economy, and the cost of such industrializing programs could only be borne by extracting still more from the countryside on the state's terms. Which, given the poor harvest of the year, Bukharin had an excellent point. There wasn't all that much to extract at the moment. Bukharin was still editor-in-chief of Pravda and used his position to make his criticism of the proposals public. But the moment of his prominence had passed, and the article only moved Stalin to reprimand the right members of the Politburo on October 8th. He began installing his own supporters even in the offices of Pravda, limiting what Bukharin could do and say on the newspaper he ostensibly ran. The Moscow branch of the party was overhauled, although it was done with slightly less violence and threats than the purge on the Leningrad branch previously. During October, Stalin simply directed the lower-ranking members of the Moscow branch to stop cooperating with their leaders, effectively a strike. Bukharin's supporters were immediately marginalized, and by October 19th, his biggest base of support had been captured by Stalin. With Moscow secured, Stalin branched out in earnest, dismissing members of the right. Bukharin, for his part, was vacationing down in the Caucasus and seemed apathetic to what was happening around him. When the Central Committee met again in November, Stalin offered a reduced industrial program as a compromise, so that Rykov would be willing to publicly deliver the proposal and demonstrate a show of unity within the Politburo. This was a little bit of theater, as Stalin was going to implement the policy as he desired anyway, and when Rykov read the proposal to the committee, the body was so stacked with Stalin supporters that he was jeered for the timid plans he was offering. Bukharin correctly sensed the mood and didn't attend. In December, Tomsky decisively lost control of the trade unions after its members refused to work with him and his supporters, with the Congress of the Trade Unions that month publicly overruling him. He tried to resign on December 23rd, and despite being refused, he simply stopped showing up to his post. Bukharin did the same with Pravda and stopped his work on the paper. By this point, the right had been beaten, and there would be no new faction to rise against Stalin. Bukharin would do what he could to publicly rail against Stalin's excesses, but it was far too late. The three right leaders remained as passive ghosts in the Politburo meetings. When Trotsky was ordered exiled outside the Union in February 1929, they did summon the wherewithal to argue, but did nothing when they were disregarded. They protested when more ambitious industrialization programs were approved in spring 1929, but could do nothing. Their final battles in the Central Committee in April were as farcical as the last ones endured by the left opposition, with huge majorities of Stalinist supporters denouncing the handful of opposition members that remained. What was really extraordinary about these power struggles 
was that they were largely invisible. Only those on high in the party apparatus knew there was a breach between Bukharin and Stalin, and publicly Bukharin was the more well-regarded due to his status as a thinker. But that didn't matter, because Stalin knew how to lock up organizational support. Finally, in April 1929, Bukharin would be stripped of his positions in the Comintern and Pravda. In May, Tomsky would finally be ousted from his leadership position with the trade unions. Rykov would lose his post on the Savnarkom later in November. They'd remain on the Politburo for a time, but were definitively beaten. Like Kamenev and Zinoviev, they'd only be further marginalized, and as the 30s progressed, they'd all become enemies of the state. Stalin's political triumph was by this time concluded. It had taken years since his appointment as general secretary to accomplish it fully, but the deed was finally done. And this marks the ending of the Soviet Union's first phase. What was to come after would be an even more extreme nation, one that I look forward to covering in the future. And how do I even wrap up and summarize a miniseries that has gone on as long as this one? For the time period I'm covering, no nation went through such traumatic shocks, nor saw its society be so radically changed. But as far as the narrow focus on how all these events influenced the course of World War II coming together, there are some obvious takeaways. The establishment of a communist regime in the Soviet Union immediately created a lightning rod, not just for the far right of the world, but the liberal center as well. The USSR was the top fear of the establishment of the entire world, which made a degree of sense because its stated mission was to crush that establishment. From a geopolitical perspective, it effectively took Russia off the board, as nobody wanted to work or ally with them. For its part, the Soviet Union was a stunted nation, wrecked by the double whammy of World War I and the Civil War. Its industry was badly reduced, and it functioned mostly as a resource extractor, almost like a belligerent colony. The potential to become a great power in its own right was still there, though, and the brutal road taken to industrialize the Soviet Union will be the dominant story for that nation next season. The journey down that path was helped along, too, by the USSR's own isolation from the rest of the world. The communists won the Civil War, but the terrible conflict had occupied them for years. The golden opportunities to spread the revolution passed by, and the smaller attempts that occurred later in Europe were quashed one by one. The reaction from the continent's elites was so strong, which coupled with the hesitancy of those on the left unwilling to go so far as the Russians, meant that the international cause embodied in the Comintern was properly contained. It opened the door to the ultra-right all across Europe as traditional liberalism failed to do the job, but it was contained. The Comintern's efforts to break the cage around the USSR as a result became one futile uprising plot after another, cementing wariness of communism during the 20s. It also made the Soviet Union a closed network, a red keep under constant siege, and that was a perfect environment for a single man with sufficient drive and a lack of inhibitions to consolidate power around himself. The first decade of the Soviet Union's existence was extraordinary for the simple fact that the experimental state survived, and its next decade would see the Union exceed the first by marshalling its resources to build a state capable of weathering the coming storm. I'll just say it would be a brutal experience, as to convey the enormity of it all would require a miniseries of its own. So, I'll just leave the Soviet Union here for now. We could probably use the break from it anyway. Next week, I'll begin a short miniseries on the international peace conferences and initiatives made during the 20s 
to ensure a fresh war would not break out again. Some of the topics I touched on in earlier episodes, but they're big enough that a series focused entirely on them and without the constraints of a single nation's perspective is warranted. And after that will be the concluding miniseries for Season 1, The United States. I've been covering the Soviets for so long at this point, I almost forgot this podcast involved other places. So, back to Western Europe next week. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. (laughs) 